0: Welcome to the Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to the Megan Kelly Show. Today on the program, we've got Andy No and Shelby Talcott. Now, Andy is now a New York Times bestselling author of the book Unmasked. It's all about Antifa. And Shelby is a reporter, young, up and coming, whippersnapper reporter for the Daily Caller who has found herself right in the middle of all the melees that we've been watching over the past year, especially over the summer of unrest. And I do mean right in the middle of them and the most infamous of them. So we're going to get into what is this group? What is Antifa? How does it operate in real life with the reporters who are actually on the ground covering it and not just the ones who swing by and the, you know, middle of the night to do a live shot and look good on CNN. These are actual reporters who have been following Antifa protest after protest, riot after riot. What is the truth? Is it, as Joe Biden says, this is an idea, not an organization? Or is it actually an organization that has tactical moves, means of communicating, and rather disturbing approaches to weaponry and ideology? We're going to get into all of it, and you will be a lot smarter about Antifa when we are done with this hour. But first, I have to talk about something fun, and that's Paint Your Life. I love, love, love this product. As you know, this is the thing where you send in the photo, and they give you back a painting of your photo framed. It's paintyourlife.com if you're interested in this. And if you want to find anybody anybody who's hard to buy for a gift, go here. Birthday. Mother's Day, that would be this would be a good one for Mother's Day. Anniversary, you name it. Uh, It's so clever and it's lovely and it's not expensive. It's really not that bad. So go and check it out because it's a great idea and it's truly very affordable and the quality is amazing. Their user friendly platform lets you order a custom made hand painted portrait in less than five minutes. And then in about three weeks, you'll get the actual portrait. Any picture, your friends, your family, your kids, or you can combine more than one photo into one painting. It's like the painting equivalent of a Photoshop. Perfect for a gift. It's meaningful. It's personal. It can be cherished forever. I love, love, love mine. And I decided to give it to Doug for our anniversary. I decided not to do it for Valentine's Day because we were away and I didn't have it. So we're gonna do it for the anniversary. It's coming up March 4th and i let you know. I know he's gonna love it because it's cool. Okay, so at paintyourlife.com, there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, they give you your money back. Your money gets refunded. Guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. You can get 20% off your painting. 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, text the word MK to 64,000. That's MK to 64,000. Text MK to 64,000. Paint Your Life helps you celebrate the moments that matter most. And now, Andy knows. I've been watching you. First, I I saw like a couple of clips on Fox. I'm like, who is that guy? And I started to read more about you. Then I saw you get attacked and I was like, holy shit, I need to know who this is. So it's an honor to have you here. Thank you for doing this.
1: Thank you. And congratulations on the success of the podcast.
0: Thank you very much. And congrats on the success of your book. It is called Unmasked, Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy and It's hard to find true experts on this group, Antifa. I think most of us regular folks don't totally understand it, and you're going to help us understand it. But before we get to your book, let's just talk about you so the audience knows who you are. You're 33 years old. Your parents immigrated to America from Vietnam in 1978. And where did you grow up?
1: I grew up primarily in Portland.
0: And somehow, notwithstanding that, you wound up, quote, center right. That's how you describe your politics. How on earth did that happen? So I think,
1: uh, well, it goes back to actually when I was a student journalist, when I was a graduate student at Portland State University and, um, Megan, uh, at that time. And and then I have just admired your journalism for so many years. And I think, um, what I was motivated to do was to pursue the stories that I didn't see being told. And at that time, as a student journalist, the what all my peers and editors were telling me is that um, tr- Trump supporters are racist and, you know, everything that we've heard now for more than four years. And, uh, you know, it was much more of a nuanced picture when I actually got to interact with students who, for whatever reasons, were uh, right of center and were quiet about it. And eventually I think more and more, I moved more to the center right rather than, um, libertarian, which is how I identified before. And, um, I got started on the anti for beat, uh, in November of 2016 when I was on assignment to cover the protest reactions in Portland. So, uh, on that night in November, tens of thousands of Portlanders took out because they could not accept the election results that Trump have won. And within that, there was a faction of them that dressed head to toe in black um, and carrying melee weapons, and they destroyed numerous businesses, property, they started fires. And that was the first time I came face to face with Antifa, but I didn't know who or what they were at that time, but it was quite shocking to see that level of organized violence taking place in, in my hometown.
0: As you're watching it, you're thinking, all right, so there seems to be a collection of people here who are organized, who who are not sort of grassroots protesters, but maybe more sophisticated than that. And at that point, you didn't know that they were part of this group called Antifa. And so how did you go about figuring that out and then getting to the bottom of what Antifa is?
1: Great question, Megan. So the headlines that were coming out in Portland at that time uh, for and for the next four years were that these were, quote unquote, anti-fascists taking to the streets to oppose white supremacy and neo-Nazism in the far right. But what I was seeing were people brandishing symbols of an organization, uh, it said anti-fascist um, action. And they had this logo, the two flags, a black flag and a red flag, and I was listening to the chants, and I could tell there was there was a co- coherent ideology behind what they were doing. That this wasn't just a grassroots spur of the moment um, anti-racist protest, as we were being led to believe by the headlines. And the more I looked into them, uh, the more their violence is coming, becoming embedded in in Portland as well as other cities. So from twenty seventeen on to twenty twenty, uh, the violence really did become routine on the streets. We were having monthly street brawls of um, left, far left people fighting Trump supporters, and they became really bloody and um, lots of violence and. Again, the media coverage was not informing the public on who these people actually were. And the more I looked into the ideology, I saw that I learned that these were anarchist communists who were using the label and brand of anti-fascism to hide and cover for a much more extremist political ideology and agenda.
0: Antifa, according to your book, you describe it as a violent extremist movement attacking all kinds of targets under the guise of anti-fascism. But what they really want, you say, is to destroy America. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, that sounds like hyperbole and really dramatic. But if you look at their literature, and it's available on all their various think tanks and websites and their social media, and they also give it out out there. Um, riots and also when they create autonomous zones the literature provides a basis for why the united states is not a legitimate state and not only that it needs to be that it cannot be reformed that it must be destroyed and they call america a fascist imperialistic state and they view free markets and freedom of expressions as vectors for fascism to spread So they have this particular view and interpretation of the 20th century that if Hitler and the Nazis had never been allowed to speak, um, had never been allowed to organize in public, that the Holocaust would have been averted. So they hold a very um, extreme view, as you see, and they're not just anti-freedom of expression. They believe that the response to ideas that they don't like is to respond using violence against their targets. And
0: so were they were they like were they lying in wait all this time? I mean, I'm sure they existed prior to this summer of unrest, but describe what they were doing prior to that.
1: Antifa in the United States have been around since the 80s, and the original first Antifa started in the end of 4 years in Germany during the the Weimar Republic and the capital a Antifa and it was a paramilitary group of the German Communist Party, and at that time the people that they were calling fascists weren't just the Brownshirts but also the Social Democrats, the governing center left party. So from its inception, this label of fascism has always been applied to any political opponent, and. When East Germany was created as a, a communist state after World War II, they actually instituted some of this so called anti fascist ideology at the state level. And what they developed was essentially they called America and the West um, fa- fascism. Uh, when they built the Berlin Wall, it was called the anti fascist defense barrier. So, this whole, there's decades going back of history of how. Anti-fascism, quote and unquote, doesn't mean actually what it sounds like. How, but rather to the far left, it is applied not just to liberals, but anybody who is a political, ideological opponent to
0: them. Mm-hmm. So if you if you don't want to destroy America, you're on the enemy's list. So so I don't know. Maybe it's just me because I don't remember hearing that much about these guys prior to this summer, and then it was like they were everywhere. And then there was a real question about how much of the violence at these BLM riots we saw was caused by BLM protesters and how much was caused by Antifa. Do you have any any sense for that? Because I, I I read in one of the unkind and not surprisingly, your book is not being nicely reviewed, even though it's at the top of the bestseller list, right? Because, of course, the leftist media doesn't like anything talking about Antifa. But I read a stat in one of those articles that said um, The Center for Strategic and International Studies uh, came out finding that Antifa had, quote, a minor role in the violence that did occur over the summer of unrest, most of which was driven by a local autonomous group of actors, and that the organization's threat was relatively small. Do you agree with that?
1: No, I don't agree with that, because so the way that Antifa is organized... One of the common misconceptions is that some people think it is a single organization, capital A, and that is structured in a traditional hierarchical way. That's not how they're organized. So when Biden um, last year during a debate echoed um, the head of the FBI by saying Antifa as an ideology, that's not incorrect, but it's just an incomplete statement. So in addition to being... An ideology, an ideology of anarchist communism, extremist anarchist communism. It's also made up of of networks of groups and cells that are organized around a common ideology, and they operate primarily autonomously, which makes dismantling very hard. Their communications mm-hmm. are done on encrypted chats, like chat ch- chat applications, like Signal. So there's always plausible deniability for their involvement and usually uh, Where they have had the most success is when they embed themselves in larger demonstrations in turn protests into riots so um, You asked a moment ago It seems like they kind of just come out of nowhere And I was saying that they've been around on the fringes of the far left in the United States since the 80s But starting in 2016 they were really able to move into the mainstream left because they had the legit- legitimacy that was given by the the mainstream media, the legacy media and journalists um, and politicians who are now talking about the election of Trump signal that we were on the cusp of another Holocaust, that this is American fascism, that people needed to resist. They were using all these words of war. Well,
0: like people like AOC who sound a lot like Her messages sometimes sound very similar to those we hear from Antifa. Exactly. And I I write about in the book how there are politicians
1: in the Democrat Party, high-level politicians who have at best um, been uh, provided rhetoric that is encouraging to Antifa and at worst has actually encouraged people to donate to some of these campaigns that provide legal aid to Accused rioters, and it's not just AOC who's done that for a riot that happened in Boston, but now VP Kamala Harris has infamously um, tweeted out the support for um, the Minnesota Freedom Fund, which mm-hmm. bailed out every single person who wasn't just accused of rioting in Minnesota last year, but also accused of attempted rape, attempted murder, and other really heinous it's crimes.
0: Oh no, that's that's crazy talk. I mean, when when she did that and others, I remember Justin Timberlake um, he also offered to bail out. It's like, do you understand what you're supporting? You're not supporting Black lives. You're you're supporting violence and the murder of Black lives. Your book points out that most of those who were killed in this summer of violence we experienced were Black, and no one seems to want to deal with that fact. But it, this is not about protecting Black lives. This movement they they hurt people with impunity. Now just to jump back to AOC for a second, because you you point this out in your book that she talks about how, you know, she wants to stop fascism and that's what Trump represents, and that she routinely calls for, I'm reading from your book now, the abolishment of ICE, defunding police, and ending capitalism. And that's exactly what Antifa wants and some chapters of Black Lives Matter wants.
1: Exactly. So the Antifa have some like longer term goals. Abolishing the U.S. is obviously quite a grand goal, but they they have certain things that they are doing in the meantime, and one of which is to completely delegitimize the rule of law, which is why they're attacking a lot of these institutions that represent like border enforcement, police, etc. And as for AOC, it's really been shocking to see how her really radical and extreme language, such as referring to um, border detention centers as concentration camps. Those same words were repeated by Willem van Schbronsen, which is an anti-folk extremist who launched a firebomb attack in Tacoma, Washington in 2019. Uh, he came armed with a rifle and homemade and sundry devices and blew up a vehicle and tried to blow up, according to police, a 500-gallon propane tank that was attached to the building he was shot dead and he left behind a manifesto that in part quoted from AOC. Um, So it's but again, these politicians who are now focusing on language and incitement uh, around Trump, they're never held accountable for their incitement to violence.
0: Mm -hmm. And so so you point out in the book that there's a relation, of course, because we saw Antifa coming out at the BLM protests over the summers, you know, that the riots were turned into riots. That's where Antifa gets involved. Um, and you're, there's a quote in the book from Patrice Cullors, one of the one of the founders of BLM, saying our task is not only to abolish prisons, policing and militarization. We must also demand reparations. She called the United States the most extensive purveyor of human rights atrocities at home and abroad and called for the dismantling of the United States. Basically, this is the quote um Abolition means no borders. Abolition means no border patrol. Abolition means no immigration and customs enforcement. I mean, that sounds like AOC. AOC sounds like Antifa. And these sort of the the BLM, the, the Antifa protesters, some of these far left Democrat politicians are, it's no accident that they have the same messaging and that we're hearing more and more about these mantras. And sure enough, like legitimate politicians push for the elimination of ice, right, and like Joe Biden completely changing our border policy now that he's taken over and i and I just wonder whether you think they've made huge progress over the past six months
1: They have I think um people fail to recognize how um wise some of the anti foot thinkers actually are in some of the strategies. Obviously, the media focuses a lot on the the street violence because it's visceral and shocking when it's caught on video. But the street violence is actually just one part of what they do. The ideology also includes things about trying to attack from within uh, using, in some cases, legal democratic um, election uh, election process. So you have people elected to city councils um, in Portland, in Seattle, in Minneapolis and other cities who are echoing Antifa propaganda talking points about abolishing police, essentially mainstreaming their ideology. That's the most important thing that they're doing um, in having allies who are elected officials is Mm -hmm. this mainstreaming because Antifa, they're so extreme that they have to be whitewashed and legitimized in the wider left to in order to be able to be palatable and to be able to introduce their ideology incrementally to people and to radicalize them so it's it's been no surprise that they've been able to sort of just explode as an american phenomenon four years ago because we were being fed day in and day out that we were now living under american fascism and that people had to resist by any means necessary and all the political violence that was being done on the, the left um, was being incrementally tolerated. I, I was really right. disturbed initially when um people were celebrating um the punch a Nazi memes. I mean, at that time I recognized that it's um you know it can be easy to 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 sort of just turn a blind eye when like an odious pers- odious figure gets punched, right? But the messaging behind that was that it was okay to inflict violence against people who are quote-unquote Nazis. And you saw this label of who is a fascist or a Nazi being applied very, very broadly, uh, which led to more violence throughout the next few years. And then through 2020, in my view, we had insurrections attempted in parts of uh, American urban areas. And it was all excused and kind of now being... I feel like we're being gaslit, it's like all the focus on the 6th of January has overlooked the violence that was magnitudes larger, not just in terms of deaths and injuries, but the destruction to livelihoods and billions of dollars to the American economy.
0: That's no accident. That's that's no accident. That's what the Democrats wanted, and that's what the media wanted, was to move on from the rioting and the death that we saw over the summer, and move back to a place that they feel most comfortable, which is blaming Trump supporters for being racist, white supremacist, awful, terrible people. And and you know you point out correctly, I think, how these goals, Antifa's goals, and some of the BLM goals, um, have backfired. We've seen already right? You had Minneapolis and its attempt to defund its police fall apart entirely. Already they're reversing it. Portland, Oregon, you point out in the book, they, they, someone thought it would be a good idea to dismantle the quote gun violence reduction team. Someone's like, get let's get, re-. yeah, those guys trying to reduce gun violence, get rid of them. And guess what happened when they did that? Why don't you tell the audience?
1: Yes, we had skyrocketing um shootings in Portland in unprecedented unprecedented levels in recent decades for shooting homicides and this is not a phenomenon that's unique just to Portland it's across America like there are really severe consequences to this implementation of the BLM antifa agenda and what they're trying to do is really to destabilize local areas and to create power vacuums like this whole this wholesale, demoralizing of police has had really profound effects. I think you can look in in the Pacific Northwest, which is where I'm most familiar, you're having like low record levels of low number of officers, record high numbers of resignations and early retirements. And even when police want to respond to riots that are happening on the streets, which are still happening to this day in Seattle and Portland, There is just not the resources to respond. So people are really suffering.
0: More with Andy in just one second. But first, we are just a few days away, people, from Blinds Galore's huge Friends and Family sale, where everything will be 50% off. You can get your free samples today, so you'll be ready for the biggest sale of the year when it starts Tuesday, March 2nd. Have you been wondering what to do with that window? You get blinded by the sun. Off of all that snow? Well, this is your chance to get high-quality, custom-built blinds, shades, or shutters from Blinds Galore. It's a family-owned and run company. It's been doing this for over 20 years, led by a mom-daughter duo that truly wants you to love your view. The experts at BlindsGalore.com know how to get you a designer look without a designer price. And you can do it all right from home. Just take your measurements, customize them online, And their new Build-A-Blind tool will let you create and customize your window treatments. So you'll be able to see exactly what they look like right on screen before you press buy. If you've got any questions, Blinds Galore's expert customer care team has covered over 2 million windows, and they'll be very happy to help you every step of the way. It could be intimidating, right? Like, how do I do the measurement? What do I include the frame? What do I, right? They're going to walk you through all that. They've, they've idiot-proofed it so somebody like me can make it happen. Um, You can do it either online or over the phone, whichever you prefer. So order your free samples today so you will be ready when their friends and family sale starts March 2nd and everything will be up to 50% off. Visit BlindsGalore.com and let them know I sent you. That's BlindsGalore.com. And they're out there not just looting and burning things which is bad enough i mean they're they're burning police headquarters city buildings this is not this this is legit i mean there absolutely could be loss of life and there has been but i was shocked to see in the book some of the tactics that they use and the the weapons that they that they work that you wouldn't know is a, a weapon like the umbrellas the water bottles can you just talk a little bit about The weapons that they they bring with them. Yeah.
1: So to put this into context, so people are very familiar with what happened on 6th of January in Capitol Hill. All that and worse happened night after night after night for more than 120 days in Portland. And Portland is a major American city. It's one of the largest ones in the Pacific Northwest. And night after night, what I was seeing is that People in it dressed in the same black uniforms were bringing knives, um, homemade explosives, guns to their riots. And they were setting fires to buildings for people inside. In, in July, when a lot of the parachute journalists from D.C. New York came to Portland to cover some of the rioting, the Antifa, night after night, were trying to burn down a federal courthouse. Like, that, that's a big deal. And they were um, throwing these modified firework explosives to injure the federal officers. And um, Ken Cuccinelli last year year had gave testimony to uh, the Senate, where he was talking about the really severe injuries that the officers um, had to deal with, including PTSD, by the way. And the response in the press, the headlines were and the response from even the governor and the senators in Oregon and other places were that they were describing the officers as Trump's secret police and occupying force, Gestapo. And the pictures that they had, like, this was such a fascinating window into like how propaganda is made in real time. So all these people with cameras and photos, they were photographing people holding things that looked relatively innocuous as projectiles, such as water bottles or them holding umbrellas but as police noted in Portland some of the umbrellas were affixed with small knives at the end of the sticks at the end of their umbrellas the water bottles were frozen solid and they were using that to throw hurl it at police officers faces and heads they were buying these lasers through um, online websites lasers that are capable of causing permanent eye vision damage And they had a whole brigade set up that would target on a single topic, a single victim. So eye injuries are one of the the things that Ken Cuccinelli had reported. And this was being done day in and day out. And in July, when the federal officers finally um, withdrew some of their numbers at the courthouse, I remember the media headlines were saying that um, with the uh, police gone, that the problems are going to go away, everything was their fault. No, what happened next was the rioters then moved to residential areas of Portland and set fires to police stations.
0: Hmm. The, this is gross, but the behavior on Capitol Hill the day of the riot was awful in every way. Um, but one of the things that got coverage just because it was so desecrating to such an important and special place, was how people were smearing feces on the walls of the u s Capitol building. That's one of the reasons why it jumped out of me in your uh, to me in your book what what antifa does with balloons. Can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, so they made all these homemade projectiles in addition to the things I mentioned, but um in some of the uh, police reports that were put out locally, water balloons were being filled with a slush mixture of face, faces and water, and that was being hurled at officers. Uh, they were also filling water balloons with paint, and that was used to um, obscure the visions of police, and they were also um, creating sort of like mini um, Explosive devices by using light bulbs and throwing them uh, filled with paint uh, at the faces of police. So, like the level, the type of violence that they were doing was didn't require a high level of sophistication, but they were able to do severe damage. And on top of that, they came armed with guns. And at the end of August in Portland, one of the so-called self-styled Antifa security people ended up stalking out a Trump supporter in downtown Portland and shooting him point blank dead. And then he fled to another state before later getting killed by federal authorities. So this ideology, extremism, has produced death. And I I get so frustrated whenever I keep seeing this lie repeated um, by politicians and in various Um, biased publications that say Antifa has killed nobody like you can that's um, empirically false and then you can also look at the trail of misery that they've caused and that's significant and it's just it's it makes me so sick that this violent extremism essentially terroristic acts are being excused because of people doing it or saying they're doing it in the name of anti-racism and anti-fascism.
0: So what's incredible is they're using all these tactics. I can't imagine what it's like to be a police officer in Portland. Oh, good gracious, those poor men and women having to deal with all of this. Um, and then you point out that they, they, they're they very clever. They, they use protesters who are there as human shields. They know when the cameras are running. So they know how to make themselves look like they're not the aggressors they're they're savvy um, but in the meantime what you refer to as the parachute journalists who just parachute in and try to you know i covered the riot uh come back and issue reports like we saw in the washington post which is it was mostly unremarkable and then you've got places like the oregonian which you point out in the book won't even print the mug shots of the antifa folks who who have been arrested or the BLM folks, I guess they think it's racist. Um, So you've got a complicit media that runs cover for them. And we saw it too when Joe Biden said, right, it's just an idea. It's it's not an organization. And they all ran cover to say, oh, that's true, that's true, that's true. So you have a media that's really not interested in the violence that they're perpetuating or the truth about this group.
1: Yeah, I think people don't appreciate how serious things got just months ago. I mean, BLN and Antifa extremists in Seattle, which is the largest city in the Pacific Northwest, they actually took over six blocks of city property and created a hard border with checkpoints that were manned by their security who were brandishing semi-auto rifles and pistols and other things. And they created essentially a hostage situation for the thousands of people who lived in that area. And that was allowed to go on for three weeks by the mayor of Seattle and the governor of Washington state. And that devolved very quickly into nightly violence, shootings, attempted rape, mass vandalism and murders. And like people just seem to, I I mean the reporting at the time I remember was, it was being described as a, a block party atmosphere like these were journalists who were from corporate media who came in with their security, and then at night they would leave, and they didn't see all these other things that were happening. Happening, and um, one thing that I didn't see reported anywhere, but I write about in the book, was um, in CHAZ, the so-called autonomous zone that that existed in Seattle last summer. Um, they they had these literature booths set up where they were distributing booklets that they printed out, and the, the ideas within contained within those pages are, are so extreme. It's like what you would find, I think, for like a jihadist group, like things that were providing sort of the ideological and theoretical justification for political violence against other people, uh, why you should use uh, human body shields, how to barricade yourself within a building, prevent police from getting inside how to create homemade weapons. This was being given out, I saw, to like youth and even kids. It was being passed out like candy. And the response from the mayor, at least well until this um, this occupation, was to go and see an end and to say to Chris Cuomo that this could be a summer of love.
0: Oh, good gracious. And same with the Portland mayor, Wheeler. That, that guy was a hot mess. He was begging for their approval. It wasn't there for the taking. And at the end of, you know, his summer on the knee, he announced he's moving <laughs> right? Is that do I have my facts right?
1: Yeah, so uh one misconception that exists on on, on the right is they um people think that Antifa are Democrat voters, that they support Democrat parties. Now they tolerate some Democrat politicians, particularly AOC, but by and large they don't recognize um, any American government. They view the entire United States as, in all its institutions as irredeemably wicked and fascistic. So this coddling that Ted Wheeler did for them for years ever since he came into office in 2017 allowed, under his watch, um, allowed Antifa to better organize in his city and to grow and to establish a sort of apparatus in a blueprint that were, were was replicated in other nearby cities. And he really seemed to kind of want to appease them. And that never wor- never works, You can never appease them. They rioted outside his home, they set uh, the condo where he was at on fire, which by the way is occupied by dozens of other families. And in response, uh, Wheeler, who's also the police commissioner by the way, just simply announced that he was moving. And I, I think this what this is emblematic of is all these politicians like Wheeler, um, Jenny Durkin's not running for re-election, Antifa showed outside of her house. They have the resources to go on and have a nice life. But the 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 wake of their the consequences of their political decisions and their poor leadership are, are really long-lasting for the people who remain in the cities where they were elected to to power.
0: Of course, of course. You know, we talked about the the parachute journalists. You you're not one of them. I mean, half the reason we know about this group is because of you, because you just continued to stay on it. You saw a thing. You did exactly what a good reporter is supposed to do. You saw a thing. You asked questions about the thing. You investigated the thing. You. I I won't say infiltrated the thing, but you went where they went and covered the thing. This this moving sort of blob that we now know as Antifa, which is growing and getting more organized and very savvy and working the media and so on. And as a result of all this, you became, as, as you describe yourself, their public enemy number one. And this is a dangerous group to have as one's enemy, as you've outlined. And indeed, you were attacked. You were physically attacked in June of 2019. Um, It was a it was a Proud Boys event. These I don't I confess, I don't totally understand Proud Boys. I mean, the, the left says it's a white supremacist group. Then you see it's run by a black man. I don't actually understand what it is. Maybe you can enlighten me. But they showed up as like, I guess, on the other side is how they would see themselves And you were attacked. So before we get to the attack on you, can you explain what's Proud Boys exactly?
1: Proud Boys, uh, I think they get the reporting in the legacy press on Proud Boys is really inaccurate. And they repeat a lot of the really inflammatory lies from uh, those who oppose any pro-Trump type of organization. So... Cowboys is a right wing fraternity style type group. They do social events, um, and I think probably they do things that are provocative in terms of like holding pro Trump rallies in cities that are um, predominantly blue, like Portland and Seattle and other urban areas. And through the years, uh, some of their members have been in- involved in um these brawls that would frequently happen antifa would come out to fight them and they'd fight back um some of their members have been convicted or are facing current charges for uh, alleged involvement uh i know they're accused of having a role in the capitol hill riot uh i think um there's a lot to be critical of what they do um but spreading lies about the organization, such as describing them as a, a neo-Nazi terrorist organization, is not only uh, unhelpful, it actually motivates people on the left to come out and to respond in kind. So if anything, I think the the poor reporting on Proud Boys has caused um, counter reactions that have led to growing street brawls over the past few years.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're there to cover, you know, what, what promises to be a, a newsworthy event. And how were, how were you attacked? Because it made national news. It, it was everywhere. Um, what happened to you? So what, what happened?
1: In 2018, I started becoming a target for Antifa after I wrote a piece that was published in the Wall Street Journal about the their occupation during the summer of the local ICE facility in Portland. And they had um, took over the exterior of the building uh, in the early days and actually had created another hostage situation where staff inside could not actually leave because the exits were blocked. Um, They ended up establishing this area that was an encampment um, that became a life safety issue. And after several weeks, the city was forced to dismantle it. And so I wrote about everything that was happening, how the residents of that, that community were terrorized by these people who uh, the Antifa were doing patrols on the streets and they would openly brandish batons and other weapons to in- intimidate the public. And so that put me on their list of unfriendly media. Uh, it continued to, their targeting of me continued to escalate. And then in the summer of 2019 was when that attack happened. It was, Uh, A very large Antifa and Democratic Socialists of America gathering to oppose what they said was a Proud Boy event. There were about maybe 10, between 10 and 20 Proud Boys who were waving flags in another part of downtown. And I came there, as I had done many times, to document a newsworthy event that was happening uh, in public with my cameras. And uh, halfway through the day, um, I just. I was punched repeatedly in the head suddenly and kicked. Um, And then when I thought that was done, I was just trying to get away. Uh, It happened right in front of the the central police station, Uh, but there were no police, uh, which um, by that point was pretty normal for Portland. The anti-fucking just shut down traffic, uh, assault drivers and do it with impunity. Uh, but, as I was trying to walk away, that's when they threw all these liquids on me to blind me uh, and to humiliate me and that's the photos and videos you see of me covered and all that stuff. Um, nobody's been arrested over that it's been uh more than a year and a half since that happened um, and the the violence in Portland has continued to to escalate my my warnings to uh public officials about this threat that we were facing were ignored. And I mean, it Mm -hmm. gave rise to their four month campaign of terror last year.
0: What, what was in the quote milkshake that they threw on you? I
1: actually don't know. So the Portland police at that time had put out uh, a tweet based on Intel. They received that some of the uh, milkshakes may have been tainted with quick-drying cement. Uh, but they never collected a sample, so it was never definitively confirmed. And so um, I had abrasions all over my face, and the liquids were seeping in, and it really it felt like a burning sensation. And I know that quick-drying cement can be caustic, um, but I also had cuts all over, so I don't know which was which. Um, I was hospitalized, I had a brain hemorrhage, um, but I assume that was because of the repeated um, punches to the head into the eyes mm. that they cause
0: mm. can I just ask you because one of the more infuriating things I've read recently is the LA Times review of your book your best selling it's number five now on the, on the nonfiction hardcover New York Times list despite boycotts despite so much pushback for people who didn't want this book to see the light of day it's, it's risen to the top and this L.A. Times book review—it will surprise no one that they didn't like the book, right? Given all the discussions we've had. But this guy—and you know what—I don't always name the journalists. I don't know. It's almost like a professional courtesy. I just when you call somebody out by name, yeah, I just for my for me that's a higher bar. You have to be a real prick for me to mention you by name. Um, his name is Alexander Nazarian. N-A-Z. A-R-Y-A-N. And he's talking about this incident. And let me just read you part of what he writes. Noe's fame, such as it is, stems from a June 2019 Donnybrook in Portland, in the course of which Antifa activists assailed him with a thrown milkshake. No claimed the milkshake contained concrete. Far more likely it was a vegan blend, heavy on cashew butter. Screw you. Alexander, I guarantee you weren't there, had nothing thrown on you and had no injuries. Instead, you sat in some wingback chair made out of leather trying to find fault with somebody else's on the scene reporting who got attacked and was hospitalized. Okay, so that's just an aside. Then he goes on and says, no, was punched and kicked as well. He claims to have suffered a cerebral hemorrhage. The violence was obviously criminal what goes unmentioned is that No had a history of embedding with right-wing groups, including, according to persuasive allegations he has denied, the white supremacist outfit Patriot Prayer that provoke Antifa into the very fights No then films. Get it? So you're not the victim, even when you are the victim. This must somehow be something you asked for, Andy, because You've embedded with a group that, according to Alexander, has white supremacist ties and there are persuasive allegations that you're part of this group that provokes Antifa. So mm, to you in your book, there's no evidence to support anything he says. There's no evidence to support his vegan butter <laughs> um, accusation trying to diminish you, right? And by the way, not for nothing, but you're an openly gay man. So in any other circumstance, you know, trying to, like, make light of your injuries and you're taking this seriously would be seen as an anti-gay attack, right? They're trying to make you seem, oh, too weak to withstand the milkshake. Um, All the rules are different, though, because you're writing about a group he wants to protect. So can I just ask you what your reaction is to Alexander Nazarian?
1: So Alexander is the White House correspondent for Yahoo News, and I was surprised that for somebody who works as a White House reporter that he used such um, inflammatory language uh, in his in his writings. Um, in addition to what you read, there's another point in the review where he says that uh, my book would make hair Goebbels proud. Um, that type of... I mean, I, I I, just, I don't think it's appropriate to make that type of uh, flippant remark um, just like so casually. Um, I mean, soon after he wrote that review, he had a piece come out in The Atlantic where he was um, describing himself, he's comparing himself as a White House correspondent under the um, Trump administration as somebody who was like a World War II soldier in Europe. So, you know, these are people who think... Um, so highly of themselves and they think they're so brave and diminish um, the works of other people that they look down on. Um, This accusation that he said that is uh, credible about me embedding with the far right, you know, that came from an interview that was published in a left-wing Portland paper on a blog site where the author gave anonymity to a person who made that completely baseless claim. And I have absolutely no way of confronting my uh, accuser. And so it's it's made me... Uh, to see me last year, these things were then repeated and like um, the Rolling Stone and Salon and all these other bigger publications. And then they become what people see when they Google my name. They it's bec- These accusations are then kind of at the forefront of my Wikipedia entry. And it's just, like, it made me really, like, I I never liked it when Trump described, like, the, the press as the enemy of the people. But then when you're seeing what some of these people who work as professional journalists, what they do to really try to, like, destroy somebody they don't even know, and they do it in such a dishonest way, like, it makes me understand what Trump's sentiment was when he made that statement. Mm -hmm.
0: I don't know anything about Patriot prayer or what they stand for. I know there are some right-wing group and that they've been involved in some attacks, but the, what I'm objecting to is the attempt to tie you to them. When, as far as I can see, the evidence is simply that you covered them. And I, I read reason magazine all the time. Robbie saw over there is really great in his reporting. And he said, he watched the video repeatedly uh of you like with this group this is the evidence of your you know support for this group and um he says this is a quoting from him the message coming from left of center media was clear patriot prayer planned this cider riot attack no was tactically involved and this video proves it the problem of course is that the video which mostly depicts a small group of people standing around Discusses which side of the street they should walk on, when and if they approach Antifa, and conversing with the undercover reporter proves nothing of the kind. He says, I have watched this thing from start to finish five times, and it does not even establish that the group of right wing agitators planned an attack, let alone that no was aware of such a plot. Indeed, the Portland Mercury article that receives such rave reviews from the Daily Beast, Vice, Media Matters, and others makes little effort to explain what was so damning about the video? Like what? So on this, they try to diminish you. They try to discredit you. And why? Because you've had the, the guts to get in there and report on this group in a way they find objectionable. I just, even when you're the subject of violence, they, they mock you. It's, it's wrong.
1: Thank you for giving me the opportunity to explain this particular uh, smear that has been used to try to discredit me. And thanks for looking further into it, because most people don't. They just see the headlines from Salon or BuzzFeed or Daily Beast or Rolling Stone, and then they think that it's true. And um, it's, you know, I, as a, as a journalist who started off as a student journalist, I, I made many mistakes on how to issue corrections. Before and all that that's part of what it means to to be a journalist and a reporter uh it's just it it's so frustrating that because of these smear merchants who work in the press, like they define you around um mistakes that you acknowledge and correct, whereas what they do and their friends and allies, they can essentially fail upwards and nobody mm-hmm. bats an eye
0: well, and I think it's to your credit. You're open in the book about how you've struggled for most of your life, as you put it, with crippling chronic depression. You're a human being. You you can be hurt. You can have a brain hemorrhage when you get attacked. You can find it humiliating, whether it's vegan, whatever that asshole said, or concrete. You can be dealing with the difficulties of life of being a center right guy living in Portland of cancel culture, all of it, and still find the courage to go report on very controversial groups in a way that is big and bold. And I just feel like your humanity is ignored throughout. It's ignored. And even when you're at your most vulnerable, we all saw the videotape of you and it didn't even capture the whole attack. Even then, they can only look at you as awful because you're on the wrong side. I like, I admire your courage. And and one thing I, I definitely want to ask you about is what what it feels like now to have written the book and have seen them try to get boycotts going of your book. And some bookstores, I guess, have either considered it or done it, but it's not stopping the sale and the success of the book. So how has that been for you?
1: Yeah. So a couple of weeks before the book's release, the anti in Portland mobilized outside one of the... Uh, the largest bookstore in Portland, Powell's Books. It's one of the largest independent bookstores in the world. And we're pressuring them to ban the book. And immediately the store uh, buckled and they, well, they half buckled. They said that they will not stock uh, unmasked on its shelves, but that it still be available on the online catalog. But that wasn't good enough. Again, you can never appease these people. So they protested for, uh, six more days intimidated the customers that were going in, forced the bookstore to shut down on two days, and on one day was rioting outside the front where the fight broke out in the middle of the street. Um, so uh, I I didn't write on mass to do like a commercial success. My goal was to try to inform the public about what I see as a real threat to the republic and and to tell the stories of... So many other people who have had to suffer in silence because of the brutality and violence of this movement, that is, um, the victims are ignored. They're not privileged like me, like in terms of getting invited on to interviews or have a large platform on social media. So I... uh, I felt like I was fighting on behalf of a lot of people as well. And the fact that it, it has been a commercial success has been like, it, it feels really surreal. And in some, and I have so much humility because it's my first book. And there's so many amazing writers who, who, who never um, get that type of recognition in terms of like a, a bestseller on the list. And I got it on my first one. And so and I don't take any of this for granted. I'm really... I mean, by and large, I feel that the, the present and the near future in America is bleak, but I'm also partially optimistic to see that there's this appetite within the public to really want to learn more about not just Antifa, but also BLM and the threats coming from the far left. And um, I wish I wish the legacy media did a better job of informing people about America's history of dealing with left-wing terrorism. I think Everybody's really aware of uh, the 20th century and contemporary far right um, terrorist groups, but like people aren't aware of really the Weather Underground or the Black Liberation Army. There's like a precedent of far left extremists who have carried out bombings and shootings and robberies and attacks on law enforcement, but their legacy has been rewritten and remade into heroes now in the mainstream left. You know, I'm thinking of people like Assata Shakur or even um, Angela Davis's open support for really repressive totalitarian communist regimes. She celebrated as a civil rights activist today.
0: Well, I mean, a couple of things. I do want to point out to the audience, you were one of the first people online during the January 6th Capitol Hill riot to say, guys, this is not Antifa. So people who think you're just this you know, in the tank for Republicans to Trump defender, you wouldn't have been saying that you would have been like infiltrated. These Trump supporters would never you were like, I'm telling you, no, it's not. Um, But to your second point about the weather underground and their influence in this group, because it's well documented in your book that there is a healthy presence there or unhealthy presence uh, of influence. Uh, Bill Ayers was, of course, it was his living room from which Barack Obama, in part, launched his political campaign. He, that's, that's partially true. He did have a cocktail party for a young Barack Obama before he decided to run for office. And Bill Ayers um, ran the Weather Underground. He founded the, the Weather Ground. And not for nothing, but people ask me all the time, like, you know, what, what interview do, are you most proud of? It's that one. Go to YouTube, Google Megan Kelly Bill Ayers. Forgive my weird hair that day and enjoy that interview because it's awesome. If I do say so myself, he came into the lion's den not knowing what the hell was about to happen to him. And I was fair, perfectly fair. I didn't confront him with any gotchas other than quotes from his own writings, his own books. At one point he tried to deny he said something. I said, it's in your book and put the graphic on the screen. It was great stuff. And just the whole day was such a, wild experience for me and my whole team. It was like Bill Ayers in the Fox News newsroom. We had to hide him in the basement so Hannity didn't try to steal him. And uh, listen, when you hear what he did and what he's very proud of with the Weather Underground, you realize that his influence and, and that of his group continues. It's disturbing stuff. Andy, I hope you're feeling well. I hope the success of the book has made you feel some joy in your life and that some of these risks you've taken were worth it.
1: Megan, you've you've gone through a lot. And I, I just want to share a, a side anecdote. When I was a student journalist and I applied for a journalism scholarship and I made it to the interview process, uh, the professor had asked me, uh, which journalist today do you look up to the most or find most inspiration from? And I said, uh, Megan Kelly. It's just I've always admired how your bravery um, and your, just being a straight shooter and um despite everything that um, you've gone through and all the, the smears that you've been subjected to, that you've continued. And I'm really excited to see that you've been, um, that your hard work has been re- uh, rewarded with um, the popularity of your, your work right now.
0: Oh, that's sweet, Andy. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. And thank you for taking the risk to keep us informed. Though I must tell you, Being at Portland and saying Megan Kelly is your favorite journalist was not a good move. (laughs) That was that was probably your first mistake.
1: (laughs) I didn't get the scholarship, but it's okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ah, screw them. (laughs) You're better off without them. They don't have New York Times bestsellers. Uh, All right, all the best, and stay on it, would you?
1: Thank you, Megan.
0: So we're going to get to Shelby Talcott in just one second, but first, let me tell you about Legacy Box. This is an ingenious mail-in service to have all of those irreplaceable moments trapped on videotapes, camcorder tapes, film reels, and pictures converted to DVD or digital so you will actually be able to enjoy them. Home movies, let's face it, they can transport us back to unforgettable times. But when was the last time you actually watched yours? You know how it goes. You take them and then these things just sit on the shelf and unless you really are motivated, you never see them again. That is where Legacy Box comes in. I was thinking about it because I've got a bunch of stuff. First of all, the birth of my first child, not the actual birth, but the trip to the hospital. <laughs> no one needs to see that. Um, that's on there. Um, having that done. Some old tapes of me as a young lawyer learning how to argue. Thought that it might be fun for the kids to see those. Got that done. And it was super fast. The turnaround is like nothing. They walk you through it. Your stuff is being watched and gets returned to you in original form. So you don't have to worry about preserving it. And in the meantime, you get to digitally preserve your past. So you call up or you go online and they'll send you the legacy box, right? So even if you're not sure like what you're going to put in there, just get the legacy box. So you've got it in the house so that you'll actually do it. And then when you send it in, their team will digitize everything by hand. Then you enjoy. That's it. You get perfectly preserved digital copies on a thumb drive, on a DVD, on the cloud, whatever you want. You can watch it, share it, enjoy it, all the stuff. This is a company founded by college roommates, Nick and Adam, more than a decade ago. And today, Legacy Box is the world's largest digitizer of home movies and photos. Almost a million families have trusted these guys to digitally preserve their past. They've got 200 trained technicians. They do it by hand at their 50,000 square foot processing campus in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Rediscover your glory days by digitizing those irreplaceable heirlooms with Legacy Box. Go and start preserving your past today. Go to LegacyBox.com MK to get an incredible 40% off your first order. That's very good. That's a generous offer. Buy today to take advantage of this exclusive offer. Send them on in when you're ready in the Legacy Box. Go to LegacyBox.com MK and save 40% off while supplies last. Uh, and now it's time to bring you a feature we have on this show called Asked and Answered where our listeners write in some sort of a question and we do our best to provide some sort of an answer. And our executive producer, Steve Krakauer, has got the question today. Hey, Steve. Hey, Megan. A lot of questions coming in at
1: questions at devilmaycaremedia.com. This is kind of a fun one, Uh, a little different than we normally do. This is from Mally Myers, and she wants to know which Real Housewives franchise is your favorite and who is your favorite housewife?
0: Mm. I don't know. Gosh, I love Beverly Hills and I love New York i do love them both a lot i guess if i had to choose i would choose beverly hills because the women are just so made up all the time and they're so decked out and they've had so many things pulled and prodded and plumped it's fascinating just to watch from like an anthropological standpoint my kids are always like that's the show with the boobs what's that show with the boobs and <laughs> the boobs are everywhere um I guess if I if I had to spend time like have a lunch with just one uh, like as a potential actual friend, I would choose Kyle. She seems like the most normal. Um and you know in the in the land of the blind the one-eyed man is king. Oh, uh, so I guess I'd choose Kyle. But I would say the one that I would I'd never turn away from when she's on camera is Rena. She's just such a shit stirrer, and um She's funny. I like listening to her talk about herself. She's got that rocking body. She, talks about the, she made me laugh out loud when she said she no longer will lie face down in the massage table, given all the stuff she's put in her face. <laughs> it's fun to hear women talk about their work so openly, you know, like it's self-deprecating in a way. And they live in a crazy town. Crazy. So I love seeing all the rich surroundings and trappings. And as I said before, the show generally makes me feel like a good person. You know, by by comparison. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, I confess I enjoy it. I think they've brought us a lot of laughs over the years. And uh, I'd love to have a night out. I mean, like I would never be a real housewife, but I would love to do a cameo and spend a night or maybe go like on one of those trips with them to Italy or Vegas or the spa. Um, Definitely don't go with the real housewives of New York because they get so hammered. It's out of control. Somebody always gets hurt or arrested. The Beverly Hills women can hold their liquor. (laughs) <laughs> um i think i've given you a pretty good pitch for the show if you're not already a fan we've discovered through clay travis that it's like women's sports it's like sports for women we feel about the housewives the way the men feel about the sports and i know a lot of women love sports too i don't know how many men love the housewives maybe my gay men friends but i'm not so much my husband like it's not his thing anywho long answer uh so i go with rinna and kyle and uh if you haven't tried it give it a try let me know what you think <laughs> Shelby Talcott, great to have you here. How are you? Good, how are you? Thanks for having me. My pleasure. All right, so you are the woman who fears nothing. I have spent the past (laughs) six months watching you go right into the heart of these riots. Um, And it's rare, let's be honest, to see a young woman in the heart of these things. And it's crazy to see it happening domestically. Have you been fearful doing this?
3: I would say I haven't been. There have definitely been times where I've been nervous or I've sort of realized that, you know, the situation's escalating and I definitely know the dangers behind it. Um, But as my parents would tell anyone, I have almost a disturbing (laughs) tolerance for things like this. Mm. Um, And and so you kind of turn your emotions off when you're in situations like this as well, because it's just it's almost like a safety net you know, if you can't react off of your emotions, then you're more likely to make smart decisions in these potentially volatile situations.
0: Mm -hmm. Reminds me of when I was first learning to be a reporter and I was still a practicing lawyer and I was just shadowing one of the real reporters at um, the Chicago NBC affiliate out there. And, you know, you just shadow, you just, you're just like a little barnacle who watches the, the reporter do her job. And we approached a subway train It was the L out in Chicago, the doors open and a bunch of police ran off of the subway train or the train car guns drawn. And I ran to the side to give them a path and then went to get on the train. And the reporter was like, what are you doing? I'm like, something's going on. We got to like, let's get out of here. She's like, you're a reporter. We run toward the action, not away. (laughs) Like, Go follow the police. Let's let's see what the story is. I'm like, oh, okay. I got to totally adjust my instincts. You seem to have come by it naturally because I see you out there with Richie McGinnis, who I had the pleasure to meet with you. You guys came to interview me. uh, And I don't is he a mentor to you? Is he showing you the ropes or are you learning them together?
3: So Richie's been in the game for a little bit longer than I have been. But we're sort of it's me, Richie and Jorge Ventura. There's a third third reporter who comes out on the ground with us and we've sort of throughout the past year become just like a team essentially um and we've traveled together a ton i mean i i think i spent more time with richie last year than i did with my boyfriend um luckily they're best friends so that was totally fine but but seriously you know like we we traveled together and went through these experiences together so we really are you know a team and and it's crazy how close you get to, to people when you have to go through these things together.
0: Well, and they, and they really have been life or death situations. I mean, even potentially for you guys. And the one that stood out to me as I watched your reporting was what happened in Kenosha. It was after the Jacob Blake shooting. This is the shooting in which Kyle Rittenhouse was involved, the 17-year-old. Some describe him as a vigilante. Um, he's been charged with multiple counts of murder. He shot and killed two people. The third was injured, um, but didn't die. Right. I think. Um, and you guys were right in the middle of that whole thing. I mean, can you just walk us through, just summarize that experience for you as a reporter and, and whether you thought your own life was in danger.
3: That was probably the scariest moment that I had in 2020. And it wasn't even scary in terms of wow, there's someone shooting people. I, I was so, I've never been so scared before to, for somebody else, you know? So what happened was, uh, Richie and I had sort of gotten separated and Richie, it turns out, had been following this crew. Um, and I was, I was on the phone with Richie and he, he very abruptly was like, you know, I got to hang up and he hangs up on me. And naturally I'm like, well, what the hell? Why would you, you know what I mean? I was like, well pretty rude, um, not knowing what was going on. And it, and all of a sudden I'm recording because I see right across the street at the gas station, there's a, there's a crowd gathering and I'm sort of walking towards this crowd and I hear gunshots and I don't even know if they're gunshots. Like I didn't drop to the ground. I didn't do anything. Cause I'm from New York. Like I, <laughs> am not a gun person. I, I literally looked at the person next to me and I was like, was that, Were that Were just gunshots? Like I had no idea. Um, and then people start screaming and running away. And my heart just dropped because my first thought was, Oh my God, I think Richie's over there. And I start sprinting across the street towards where the guns, you know, the gunfire just, just come from. And as I'm sprinting towards the street, uh, Kyle runs past me and there's people chasing him saying he's the shooter get him and I my sole focus in that moment was to like make sure that Richie wasn't lying on the ground
0: yeah that your team and so was I okay. run up
3: yeah and so I run up and I see someone wi- lying on the ground and I'm like oh my god like, like am I gonna have to tell his family like I know his family am I gonna have to tell them what happened? Am I going to, you know what I mean? Like, am I going to see my friend, not even just my coworker lying on the ground here? And luckily I saw him totally fine helping the person who had been shot. Um, But I just remember for like those 30 seconds, I was, I don't think I've ever been as nervous and it Mm -hmm. wasn't even for my own safety. It was just, you know, the thought of having to see that and having that happen. Of course. So we did get
0: lucky there. Just to take a step back. I mean, now we know it's, it's so crazy to know. And the reports were out there, but refused, you know, the media refused to cover them. Jacob Blake was armed. He was shot by police because he resisted arrest. He um, had a knife on him and he wasn't compliant. And the, and the police had a reasonable fear for their own bodily safety. It was a justified shooting. And um, he he lived, but he was paralyzed. And he since has admitted that he had a weapon on him, and that it was a dumb thing to do. Yes, um, I, I, it's so that's that's why we had protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin, that resulted in several deaths. So this is what brought you there: is the riots that ensued, the the shooting of Jacob Blake, and Kyle Rittenhouse was sort of this kid who saw the police standing down in city after city as they were being ordered to in some of these democratic cities by their mayors. Um, and he and a bunch of others decided they were going to sort of step in. And he showed up with, a, with, a, with an EMT kit. He was ready to perform, you know, life-saving work as, as a medical aid if necessary, which he didn't necessarily have the training for, and also with an AR-15 to protect others, protect himself, what have you. He wound up shooting three people, killing two of them. And he's been charged. His defense attorney says it's self-defense and that the tape seems to suggest it was self-defense, but the jury will have their say. You can't tell everything based on tape. Anyway, you're in the middle of all of it. And now when you look back at that, Shelby, now when you understand the facts as I've tried to lay them out, what's your perspective on what happened in Kenosha in those weeks after Jacob Blake?
3: I think it was totally preventable on multiple levels. To be clear, a 17-year-old should never be out at a you know volatile riot with a gun. You know, like like that yeah. alone should probably not have happened and I don't I don't totally. think that many people are arguing that it should have like absolutely not. But also there's been this rush to decide what happened in situations like these before we actually know all of the facts. And, and Kenosha is just one example. There's been others. Um, but, but the BLM groups, the Antifa groups, they don't, they don't necessarily wait for the facts. They just see, okay, a black person has been shot by police. Let's, you know what I mean? Let's, mm-hmm. let's get it started. Uh, and so I think it could have been pre- could have absolutely been prevented had people just waited for the facts to come out. But we've seen it time and time again. And and I think that I don't think that this will change. No one's waiting for the facts to come out. It's it's a rush to judgment. And this is what happens. So how are you
0: how are you able to tell when you're out there covering these things, whether you're dealing with Antifa or just BLM protesters who have turned into BLM rioters?
3: It's really hard to tell, to be fair, and that's why I sort of try not to declare that a group is Antifa when I'm reporting, necessarily, unless they say it, Um, because at this point, all of the protesters and rioters are generally wearing black. They're all covering their faces because of COVID, Um, and that used to be Antifa's shtick right they yeah. they would be the ones wearing black they would be the ones covering their faces but now you know BLM is doing it too uh but generally the BLM groups will continue to chant BLM phrases and they do keep that sort of motto throughout whereas the antifa groups i've found abandon that those BLM talking points and it turns into just screw the police and destroying things with sort of no rhyme or reason. There's no, there's no meaning necessarily behind it. Not that, you know, the meaning gives you the right to destroy property, but.
0: What's your experience with Antifa, Ben? Do you, are they especially dangerous? Are they just like the regular rioters, for lack of a better term? I think that
3: they can definitely be more dangerous. So Antifa, in my experience, they are like watching you, you know. They learned our faces, they learned where we were. Um, they would follow us on Twitter and on social media to figure out where we were going, and then they'd send out they're organized, you know, so they'd send out notifications to their other uh, Antifa members and they'd be like, Look out for you know, Shelby Talcott, she's on the ground in Portland this week, uh, and then. There's a targeted effort to prevent people from filming. If you, if they catch you filming something that's bad, you know, they'll literally, uh, it's it, you know, you can, that's dangerous if they catch you filming. And BLM is a little bit like that. They definitely don't want people filming the negative stuff, but it's not as organized, I would say, as
0: the Antifa groups are. Mm Mm-hmm. And so have you had any of those in, in, encounters with Antifa trying to stop you from filming? Or I know I've seen some where they want you to identify yourself. They want to know what organization you're with and, you know, why you'd be putting them on camera. And it, to me, it seems like it's like a protester out there at a at a, I don't know, an anti-Trump rally trying to figure out whether you're CNN or Fox.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, there's definitely been situations where we've been confronted for filming. Um, there's been situations that have almost escalated. There was a BLM pro- related protest in New York city last year and Richie and I were there and someone caught me filming like one of the fights and uh, like a small crowd surrounded me and wanted to take my phone and wanted me to delete the footage. And I wouldn't. Um, and we literally got like pushed out of the area because it became too dangerous. And so uh, you have reporters who will be like, "Okay, yeah, I'll delete the footage. And I don't know, maybe that's the safer thing to do. But I've always felt like this is my job. I have a legal right to be filming you on public property. Um, And I'm not going to be bullied into not doing my job as a reporter just Mm -hmm. because you're doing something that you don't want people to see. If you're doing something that people don't want you to see, maybe you shouldn't
0: be doing it. You're the angry confrontations you've had to endure. And by the way, how old are you? I'm 28. You're young. The angry confrontations that you've had to endure, they go on and on. So another one happened in June of this past year outside the White House. And that had video that went pretty viral. Can you tell us what happened there?
3: Yeah. So that those were during the when, you know, that White House, the White House protests were really at their at one of their highest points all year. And there was a big crowd who had been pushed back away from the White House. Um, There's police lined up and I was sort of standing on one of the barriers. There's like a big block. And I noticed that there was a group of people clad in black who had shields and they were marching towards the front where the police were. And so naturally, I thought, this is this could get interesting. This is where I want to be. So I hopped down, I walked over, and I started filming. And all they were doing were, was standing with their shields right in front of the police. And one woman accused me of being an undercover police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said no. There was one guy who was sort of trying to defuse the situation. I showed them my Twitter handle. And the guy was like, yeah, she's, you know, she is, she's a reporter. Um, And they were relentless. So these other, these other people, and they started shoving me. They started trying to get me out of the area. They started to grab my phone. Um, One girl like literally grabbed my phone and was on the ground as other people were pushing me, trying to grab it. And one of my coworkers, I remember seeing him literally prying each of her fingers off of my phone because my phone's my lifeline with these Mm -hmm. things. And as I just kept getting shoved, I was eventually shoved into the police line and a police officer grabbed my backpack and just yanked me through the police line. So it it was pretty scary, but I was lucky that I I was also um, handcuffed because I had breached the police line, even though they had sort of forced me to breach it. But Mm
0: -hmm. they walked
3: me to a different area and released me uh, after that.
0: Were you were you surprised, by the way? I mean, were you relieved that the police you were in sort of police custody?
3: I was relieved, but I also didn't necessarily think that the handcuffing was necessary, especially because I felt like they were the ones who had pulled me through the police line. Mm -hmm. And so they told me that it was standard um, I mean tensions were really high. One of the police officers actually did say something that I thought was quite rude to me. He said, uh, well, it doesn't matter that you're a reporter, you're just gonna give us you know, you're gonna paint this in a bad light anyway, even though we saved like we saved you. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was a little presumptuous, but also uh, you know, you've gotta look at the coverage that a lot of these situations get.
0: So That's right. You know, yeah, maybe, maybe that's reason was
3: accurate. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, after that incident, the the founder and publisher of the Daily Caller, uh, Neil Patel, came out and said, "You know, you're one of the best. You've been on the ground, getting the truth, um, and not just trying to fit the facts into a preconceived narrative." And and then he said, "The fact that Shelby would be assaulted for doing her job and telling it straight should alarm anyone who cares about press freedom." Do you feel like the industry, the media industry? had your back in, in that incident or these others in which you've been in danger? Sort
3: of. Uh, I, I, I'm a little mixed on this. So I definitely think that there have been people in the media who you wouldn't think would come up and say, hey, this is wrong. And they have. And that's awesome. We've had people from CNN, people from MSNBC, from BuzzFeed, um, from HuffPost come up and be- and, you know, been like it. But they always caveat it with it doesn't matter where she works or it doesn't matter what side she's on, which is like, I don't know. You know, it, it, I don't love that caveat, but there is something to be said for people speaking up. But then you also have people who sort of have laughed it off and been like, well, she works for the Daily Caller. Um, You know, she deserves it. And, and that's disappointing too, because I'm sure if they were put in the same position, they'd, they'd have some very different feelings about it.
0: My gosh. Yeah. It, I mean, we know she's with the devil, but she, still, she doesn't deserve to be hurt. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear they said something, though, I will say. So that wasn't your only dust up with police. You were also arrested in Louisville, Kentucky. You've had an interesting year, my friend. Yes. <laughs> you had, You were arrested in Louisville, Kentucky while covering the riots there. It's hard to keep track of the number of places where we've had the riots, isn't it? Um, yeah. And and what happened there? Because you you spent a night in jail.
3: I did. I spent, uh, I think it was 16 hours in jail. Um, and I'm not cut out for jail. <laughs> I will just put it out there. That is not my thing. I, like, I'm pretty tough, but I, yeah, I was not happy, obviously. But, what was, um, the, what was so, so bad
0: about jail, just so we know?
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, the thing that really shocked me about jail was, We were in there, I was in there with, I think, 27 other girls in one small room and the toilet was, so there was just a square room, like a block. And at the front there were windows and that's where, um, the actual prisoners would walk by and the guards could see you. And right next to those windows was a toilet. It was like a two in one toilet and, um, sink. Hmm. But there was no door. There was nothing blocking. Like if you were going to the bathroom, people like prisoners walking past could literally see you. Oh, boy. Which I which was, you know, these are all like 40 year old men who are walking by in the orange jumpsuits. Oh, my God. Um, and,
0: and and it this was a, this just is like, a weird kind of off color question, but. Did they provide, like, sanitary products? I'm just wondering, if if you were at that point in your life, it would be especially Mm -hmm. painful. So there were
3: a few girls in my cell who were in need of sanitary products, and they were not provided with any. Um, Oh, my God. Also, somebody accidentally dropped a sandwich in the toilet at the (gasps) beginning of the day, and it remained in there. So... Mm. Oh my god! That wasn't god. fun. It was just gross. And the girls did come up with a sort of a sort of a way to um, provide a little safety. So we were given a blanket, and so anytime someone would need to use the bathroom, like three or four girls would come up with their blankets and and put them up to sort of block this little toilet area for whoever needed to use the bathroom. Oh, I think that's um, sweet. So, you you
0: had that sort of bonding with your fellow Yeah, Gilberts. it was.
3: <laughs> It was (laughs) definitely a bonding experience. And actually, when I got out, I have two of their phone numbers now and we keep in touch occasionally. Um, What were they in for? Yeah, I never... So they were also in for the same things. Like uh, It was basically... I was charged with unlawful assembly and failure to disperse. And so most of the girls in there were charged with similar things or charged with curfew violations. There were a few who definitely deserved to be in there. One girl said she broke a police officer's hand with his baton. Oh. Oh, God. Um, so <laughs> a few of them, I was like, yeah, you know, but, uh, but a lot of them were for these smaller things that I was also arrested for. And uh, this, it just really opened my eyes to, you know, there is validity in saying that the justice system needs some sort of reform. And uh, I think that both sides have this issue where when they believe in something, let's take conservatives, um, are very pro-police typically. But a lot of them in in being pro-police decide that there is no fault that police officers can ever do. Mm -hmm. Um, And just like, you know, liberals will say, well, there's no good that police officers can ever do. And it really is more of a nuanced issue. And I think that We'd be able to get so much further in society if both sides were willing to recognize that their views do have things that they can work on mm. um It's just like when i played when I played tennis when I grew up playing sports, they'll always tell you you're only as good as your weakest shot, and so acknowledging that weakness will only help you get better um but but there's sort of like a stigma right now, I think.
0: With well, all and the sides, rhetoric is so sweeping. The rhetoric is so sweeping that it makes the other person retreat. Like, I can't deal with somebody who's speaking in these terms, you know, that mm-hmm. all police are fascists or, you know, they're all brutal. And it's like, yeah, so you're not an honest broker with whom I can have a real conversation about police reform, you know? That's why I like somebody yeah. like Coleman Hughes, who deals in facts and, you know, says, okay, let's look at what the actual data are. And then let's also consider testimonials from young black men who have had nothing but negative experiences with cops short of getting shot. Right. We got to look at the realities of what happens prior to a fatal shooting. It's it's not it's not all well and good just because the number of shootings has gone down. And it is true that Mm -hmm. the media has inflated, you know, individual cases, though they're representative of police, you know, as a whole. But anyway. Yeah. When the rhetoric is so sweeping, you think, uh, and I'm out, you know? And so to your point, like there, and I would say this too, if you've ever had a negative encounter with a cop, you're a lot more open-minded to the thought that cops can be bad.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's absurd to think that every single cop in America is good and should be a police officer. Yeah. I mean, it's, It's the same as every job, right? There are journalists who probably shouldn't be journalists. There are pilots who probably, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't be pilots. Um, But so to think that there's this one job where everyone is doing an amazing job is, is wrong. But on the flip side, to think there's this one job where everyone's doing a horrendous job is also wrong. And I say this with, you know, a lot of police officers in my family, a lot of, Uh, you know, my mom is a prosecutor, so she works with police a lot. Um, but it is nuanced and, but Mm -hmm. you know, the media doesn't want to sort of accept that as a reality. And I think we've done a good job at the caller uh, reporting on all
0: of those facts this past year. The Daily Caller has been doing amazing, amazing work. I mean, it started off as more a sort of a, an opinion, I don't know. Um, how do I want to put this? It's sort of like more red meat was offered up on the mm-hmm. site all the time, and it's sort of clickbait, and it has turned into a real and an important journalistic source. I've really admired the reporting you guys have been doing, especially over this past six to nine months when you've put your lives in danger. Um, so so, what's next, do you think? having covered this the summer of unrest, you know, been up front? with Antifa and the other rioters, do you think it's done? Do you think it's over now that Trump's out? I think it's going to slow down, Um, but
3: I'm not quite sure it's going to end because if you look, these groups really don't like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris either. The BLM met with them beforehand and Joe Biden sort of promised these things that he has yet to deliver on. Um, Antifa wants to completely abolish all police. And Joe Biden has already come out and said he is not going to do that. Uh, So these groups don't like this administration either. So while it's probably going to slow down a little, I wouldn't be surprised to see it pick up when it starts getting warmer. And if the administration continues to sort
0: of ignore these groups. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take much of a spark to to get that fire glowing again. Did you come from a conservative family? Kind
3: of. So growing up, most, almost all of my family was pretty conservative. Uh, when, I, when I was probably 15 or 16, I would say that began to shift. I have a, a very liberal sister. I have a very liberal dad. I have a very liberal brother. Um, one of my other brothers is a little bit more liberal, my third brother's pretty conservative my mom's pretty conservative so we're very divided politically
0: mm-hmm. so
3: it makes for interesting thanksgiving dinners
0: <laughs> i'm sure that's true and but i think it's interesting that you went out to iowa too because i think spending 4 years in the midwest like that i guess it could be helpful i mean every university is a liberal bastion but i would imagine iowa maybe less so
3: iowa city is i would say pretty liberal i think a lot of my a a fair amount of my friends who went there more than you think are, are liberal. Although I do know a lot of like the guys who played on the men's team who are from the Midwest are pretty conservative. Um, so it was a really big mix, but my dad is from the Midwest. So I did sort of grow up going there a little bit. Um, but it, it was definitely a shock coming from New York. It's definitely different.
0: (laughs) How do you think that's affected you? Like, Living in Iowa, having lived in New York City, and having come from a big family where the politics are very diverse.
3: I think that it is one of the best things that could have happened to me um, because it's forced me to be able to A, listen and understand people's viewpoints, even if I think they're completely wrong, and B, talk through it with them. And I think that this is something that's been lacking because it's, you know, the country is so polarized but you can absolutely have conversations and be friends with people who don't agree with you politically like there's more to politics at the end of the day and i think it make it has made me a better or i like to think it has made me a better reporter by being able to have these conversations with people i don't necessarily agree with and at the end of the day we listen to each other's opinions and that's it you know it doesn't end in this huge argument where you know we're never talking to each other again But but it sort of forces you to think outside of your own little box.
0: Mm. I think it's so helpful in life if you can find someone you love who's of the opposite political stripes. You know, it just helps you remember that person's humanity and that we we may argue over politics and culture and so on. and, And a lot of these are very important fights. But. We're at base. We're still humans. And for whatever reason, we've been placed on this earth at this same time together to have this same decade of looking at the Statue of Liberty and the Rocky Mountains and all of it. And and this is the collection. You know, this seven billion of us are here right now for this time. And it's so much more important than bullshit arguments over Joe Biden. You know, we we, we're going to have them. We'll have them. But humanity and the ability to love somebody who thinks differently than than you do, is really the starting point, right? It's like the core mm-hmm. and most important starting point. You seem like someone who lives that.
3: I try to, for sure. I mean, I, I also don't really have a choice because if I if I didn't act that way, I would probably lose half of my family. Um, <laughs> so you know, forced into it. But again, I think I think more people should start doing that, you know, it, I think it's important and, and having friendly disagreements with people. I mean, you know, as a lawyer, it's only going to make you better because it makes your argument stronger. It makes it, you tend to, you need to argue, you need to learn the other side in order to really argue your own side, I think. So,
0: well, I, I'd be interested in hearing, we have, we have a fair amount of people who are, um, on the left listening to this, Podcast center left, I'd say, at least according to what I read in the in the comments and online. and I'd be interested to hear what they think of the Daily caller these days because it's definitely a right leaning journalistic outfit, but it's very helpful and it's it's fact based in a way that I have found helpful and i'd I'd love to know with somebody who you know I'm center right, so I, it's appealing to me in in other ways, but if you're not of that ilk, uh, maybe the the listeners will let us know in the comments section what they think. but one thing we can all agree on is you're a star. Richie is a star as well. And um, keep up the good work and the good fight. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Legacy Box. Trust Legacy Box to digitally preserve your past. Go to LegacyBox.com slash MK to get 40% off your very first order. Ben Shapiro's coming back. He was our second guest ever and there's a lot to cover with him i love the way his mind works it's fun just to like watch it and soak it in and he's clever and he's funny doesn't get enough credit for being funny so ben's on wednesday tulsi gabbard is on friday by popular demand so don't miss out on these interviews and go ahead and subscribe rate review five stars por favor and in the meantime have a great day Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megyn Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures.
2: Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful?